9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of Deep State Radio. I'm Chris Cottonor, and I usually stay as far behind the scenes as I can get. But David is taking a well-deserved break, so I'm putting together our Best of Deep State Radio series. Over the past two years, we frequently discussed whether we were experiencing a constitutional crisis. Regular listeners will recall that Rosa Brooks had been reluctant to say we were in one for a number of reasons, which you'll hear, but on October 11th, she officially declared it. This best of episode contains clips from four of our shows over the past two years leading up to that moment. We start with an episode from March of 2018 titled, What's Worse Than a Constitutional Crisis? The panel discuss a recent Atlantic article in which the conclusion was that we were experiencing constitutional rot, but not a full-blown constitutional crisis. Well, I think that's, you know, that's the core issue here. Um, There was an article in The Atlantic um, by the folks from Lawfare that touched upon a theme that we uh, once touched upon on an episode um, about whether the United States was facing a constitutional crisis. Right. And uh, the the conclusions of the authors was that we were not we, sh- we 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 were not in a constitutional crisis yet, but that w- that what we were seeing was something like constitutional rot. Yes. Um, and I I know that resonates because you you made the argument we're not in a constitutional crisis. I personally have a slightly different view, which is this is semantics. <laughs> It's it's bad enough that, you know, let's you know, let's set aside what we're going to call it. and Let's do something about it. But 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 this idea of rot touches upon your notion of norms. Well, rot can get you to the same place in the end as crisis. Obviously, crisis, I think of as crisis is fast breaking rot. Right. But but, you know, I think this idea that leaders have to act within norms and follow the law in order for institutions to work. And that when leaders both break the law and then other leaders don't act within the norms, um, it can snowball. And what we're seeing here is that, you know, uh, Trump or a few people around Trump embrace racist ideas. And for a whole host of other reasons, Gary Cohn doesn't quit. You know, the people around Trump who are decent people, so-called decent people, they don't quit. The Republican Party doesn't speak out against it in any kind of meaningful way. He does more of it, does the same thing with breaking the law. It gets worse and it gets worse. And we have this snowball effect where laws are broken, power is abused, but also discourse in society is altered because the leaders within the society are, are are essentially giving license to the worst of us to drive the conversation. Um, and, you know, that to me is way more dangerous than, quote, collusion. 
because it's 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 the corruption of the American idea and the idea of Western democracy. Um, Ed, I mean, am I overstating this? Am, uh, no, you're not. I mean, one of the sort of disturbing um, parallels. I'd hate to, uh, um, you know, equate Steve Bannon um, to Alexis de Tocqueville, but when Steve Bannon says politics flows from culture, I believe that um, he has a point, and it's a point that stems back to de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville wrote about the strength of America lying in the customs of its people, in their temper, in, in, the, in the attitude of, of everyday Americans. And I think that's absolutely right, or to use a Marxian analogy, that really politics is superstructure, culture is base, um, the base. And um, uh, so I don't think it's um, overwrought or overstating things to say that what we consider to be normal, um, uh, polite behavior um, getting devalued and becoming, and that bar being constantly lowered um, is a profoundly troubling signal for the conduct of politics and, and, and the future of the values that we hold dear. I don't think that is, I don't think you are overstating things. Well, picking up on that, Corey, you know, he's talking about the idea of, of culture being sort of foundational and politics being superstructure on that. Uh, the, the, the lament or the fear of the alt-right, of the white supremacist movement, of the nationalist movement in many places in Europe is that there is a cultural wave that's changing the nature of their societies, and that's what's to be feared. But actually... By having leaders embrace the hate-filled, intolerant, uh, anti-normative behavior of these these groups, the, the 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 cultural crisis that we face is is something actually different, and that it's it's not a constitutional crisis. That Trump is a symptom of and leading a cultural crisis in America, where we're we're seeing. Um, corroded fundamental pillars of 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 how we you know have functioned as a democratic society so far, and I'm not saying we've been racism or hate free; those things have all been there. But there's been a net struggle against them, and there have been certain norms about people in positions of power and how do they behave, and those are all being thrown out. So. I mostly agree with that, David. Uh, I would say a couple of things, though. One it's is It's not going to make a very good mug. You know, if the mug says, David, <laughs> David, you are somewhat correct. You know, David, you're in the same zip code as being right. It's not... Well, actually, maybe it could be a mug that with heated liquid in it, you become more right. Yeah, that's and a nice thing. And then as the cup empties, it could... Like a like a rheostat. Um, so a couple of things about that. The first, I absolutely agree with you about the disgraceful behavior of our leadership and not just the president, but way, way too many important people in our government are saying, well, it's not my job to care about that. I'll get the things right that it is my job to care about. And that's that's the only standard I should be held to. And that may be a sensible, practical choice 
it is not a moral choice, or it is a moral choice that you fail the moral test of. Uh, second thing is that, yes, of course, leadership really matters, that, that racists and anti-Semites and those who would incite violence um, have as their champion the president of the United States makes the challenge for all of us that much harder. The only place where I disagree with you is that um, the, the research that I did in the fall, right before President Trump's election, on who is supporting him and why, uh, that that there are some people who are supporting him for economic reasons, some people who are supporting him for cultural reasons, some people supporting him out of fear, some people supporting him out of flat-out bigotry. And the challenge for those of us who refuse to allow America to become what the president wants it to become and what the people people supporting him want to become is is to separate right the president won because he built well if we assume the president won for purposes of argument he won by putting together a coalition that produced enough um enough electoral college votes and we need to peel that coalition apart right that there are people who are fearful of how the country's changing and we need to hold their hands and tell them all the great things about how the country's changing, that they can come on in the water's fine. Uh, the people who believe their profession is going away because it's being stolen by others, we need to either help them be competitive in their profession or help them find a new one, right? These are solvable problems that defang the, the current febrile politics that we're experiencing. And and we need to deny the president the support he had in the election of 2016 by helping people solve problems and helping people face change bravely. Okay. Rosa, I just want to go back to the discussion that we had before and this question of constitutional crisis. Um, have you changed your view? Are we in one yet? No. Is the is okay, and so what's the red line? How will we know when we are in one? I think I, I actually would would urge our listeners to take a look at the the article that you mentioned in Lawfare by Ben Wittes uh, uh, and one of his colleagues. I've forgotten the name of his co-author, um, which is a very thoughtful rundown of the arguments uh, for and again thinking about constitutional crises. And and I'm inclined to to agree with them that constitutional crisis is not when you get people making noises to the effect of, I will thumb my nose at your norms and I will thumb my nose at your institutions and rules, but when they actually disobey things like court orders in a, in a systematic way. You know, that, that the point where we, we shift from uh, constitutional rot, which we are certainly well into and which I agree can, can bring us ultimately to the same place. But the point where we shift from constitutional rot to constitutional crisis is when hypothetically, let's say Mueller uh, issues subpoenas to President Trump and he says, I won't obey them. 
uh, and it goes to court and the judge says, no, you have to obey it. And he says, no, I refuse. And nobody does anything. That's constitutional crisis. You know, when, when you and I don't think we're I don't think we're there. I think we're well, let, let me just edging offer, towards it. <laughs> let me offer you a gentle sort of nudge in the other direction just to test the theory. OK, so there are several examples we have of people ignoring the law without consequences because people on Capitol Hill won't actually enforce the law. Uh, and this includes constitutional issues like the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. It includes ethical standards and, and issues. Um, it, it, it may well include issues like um, uh, violations associated with things that like recent revelations about NDAs where the, the you know people who are in public agreements. right right where pub, people in public jobs were uh, asked to sign non-disclosure agreements with penalties that may or may not accrue uh, to private individuals if they violate them um, but they also include things like people testifying uh, in front of congressional committees and saying I'm just not going to answer your question and they say is this executive privilege and they say well it might be but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, and so they're defying um, the Congress, but nobody is holding them accountable for it. Now, aren't all those kinds of things? I'm still going to go with rot, David. <laughs> really? They're, they're, yeah, aren't, I mean, I, they, aren't they close? You know, they're, they, they, they edge us towards crisis. Yeah, you get, an, you get enough rot, you end up in a crisis. Um, and I think we are getting closer and closer to a crisis. But, but no, the, the crisis is when Congress says, yeah, we are actually going to inform you. We're going to hold you in contempt, witness. You know, we're going to put you in jail. And the president says, no, I'm going to have the military protect that person so you can't put them in jail, Congress. You know, when you get an actual clash between different branches of our constitutional government, between the executive branch and the judiciary, or between the executive branch and, and Congress, uh, when you get a, a clear clash and a clear refusal backed by, you know, force or the threat of force to abide by constitutional norms. That's, I think, when you say you're in a crisis. Again, I think this is semantics to some extent in the sense that when I say, look, we're not in, you know, and, and I'm a law professor. And when we talk about constitutional crisis, we tend to have very specific things in mind, maybe more so than than lay people. But it doesn't really matter in the sense that you know, whether you want to call it a constitutional crisis, and I don't, or whether you want to call it just constitutional rot, it's bad. It's very bad. And as I said, you know, you can get to the same place. Uh, you get enough erosion of norms, you get the kind of quiet, creeping constitutional decay, and you get you you end up destroying democracy and killing it just as dead in the end if you destroy it through a civil war where you have one branch or group saying we will not obey the law anymore and we will fight rather than obey the law, um, you end up, you know, democracy ends up just as dead if instead of a war, you just get a kind of slow, slow, yeah, we actually don't care about those norms. Yeah, we actually don't care about those norms. Yeah, it's okay with us if Congress doesn't protect the special counsel. Yeah, it's okay with us if Congress doesn't stand up for its own powers. Yeah, it's okay with us if the courts, instead of being defied, if the courts get intimidated in subtle ways and simply choose not to enforce the law. It's okay with us if the legislatures pass laws that permit previously impermissible behaviors, you know, that, that you get to the same place in the end, which is that the end of American democracy in any meaningful sense, whether you get there 
slowly, little bit by little bit, or whether you get there with a violent bust up. So, so there's saying it's constitutional rot is not the same as saying, oh, don't worry, folks. And, you know, on the on the contrary, there are ways in which I think the the rot is the deeper threat and more insidious because, you know, the 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 open disobedience mobilizes people to fight. Right. It mobilizes people to stand up. It mobilizes people to say this is an emergency. We have to do something. And one thing that we do know about human psychology, right, is that we're we're better at noticing crises if they happen quickly and they're very extreme. Whereas if we what we get is the kind of little chipping away here and chipping away there and another chip here. You know, we are we are the equivalent of the much maligned frog in the boiling water. And unlike the frog who apparently does hop out and save itself because frogs are smarter than people, you know, we don't. We we tolerate it. And, and this is historically, you know, you, you say, well, gosh, you know, how did ordinary Germans come to turn a blind eye and in many cases participate in the Holocaust? How did ordinary Hutus turn a blind eye and in many cases participate in the Rwandan genocide and so on and so forth? You know. The answer is precisely because it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen that everything is normal. And then one day, you know, the genocide heirs of the Nazis say, guess what, everybody, we're slaughtering our neighbors today. You know, it happens because one day the the, the future genocide heirs say, oh, you know, the Hutus or the Jews or whoever are, they're like cockroaches, you know, and the next day they say, you know, and they're taking your jobs. And the day after that, they say, gosh, we really ought to do something about it. And you know, and it's this sort of slow, steady drip, 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 which which habituates people to to view as normal behaviors and actions and attitudes that once would have shocked them. Uh, and so then they don't do anything when the crisis comes. And, and you know, I, that, that's that's why to me saying it's not a constitutional crisis isn't the same as saying we can be complacent. On the contrary, it's it's this steady erosion of norms that frightens me in many ways much more. This next clip was pulled from a January 2019 episode titled, Well, if it isn't a brand new bouncing baby constitutional crisis. Rosa and the panel discussed two things that brought us closer to a constitutional crisis, but despite the title was not yet prepared to declare one. (laughs) I have to say, one of the things that made me oddly happy over the weekend, um, and this reveals the perversity of being trapped inside the deep state, was that Rosa Brooks, she of the great circumspect judgments, actually tweeted out that she thought we were finally getting close to a constitutional crisis. And it's not that I think a constitutional crisis is a good thing, but I've found her holding out on us for so long to be really frustrating. Um, And I didn't feel she was freaking out quite enough. But yet, you seem, Rosa, to be freaking out a little more, and I'm just oh, wondering why. No, I'm very calm. I'm, I'm extremely calm, David. I, I'm sure you can tell how calm I am. Yes, um, yeah. I can. Um, <laughs> but it's true. I think I, I'm not entirely sure I'm, I'm prepared to go all full-fledged constitutional crisis quite yet. But, but as I said, I think we, we took some significant steps closer. Um, and, you know, I, I would... I would I would say that there are two things that have brought us closer. Um, one is just the ongoing shutdown with no end in sight. Uh, you know, when you have a a clash between two of the three uh, branches of government established by our constitution, and apparently no mechanism for for getting out of it, uh, we have a total stalemate. 
you know, that it could still get resolved <coughs> relatively quickly, maybe depending, et cetera. There are ways to resolve it. But on the other hand, um, when President Trump said uh, a couple weeks ago, whenever it was, he said, you know, could go on for weeks, months, even years. <laughs> I, my sense is that he is perfectly happy to let it go on for, for even years. Um, uh, I doubt it will actually come, come to that because we will thankfully have an election in November 2020. Um, but nevertheless, it could go on for quite a long time. And it's already a crisis. It's already a major crisis in terms of the, the livelihoods of uh, almost a million Americans. And it's a secondary crisis in terms of service provision for many millions more. Um, so that, that's one piece. The, the other piece, though, Wait, is... Wait, before you finish with that piece... Do you want to give a shout out to your mother for the op-ed she wrote? Yes, yes, yes. My mother and my stepfather um, wrote an op-ed together, uh, which is in the New York Times. uh, Today is Monday when we're recording this, um, uh, calling for TSA workers to strike. Um, They originally were planning to call for a general strike by everybody across the country, but they decided that maybe the country wasn't quite ready for a a French-style general strike, so they settled for calling on TSA workers to strike. But I've already registered David Sanger's uh, uh, request, which I will pass along to the organizers of the labor revolution of 2019, uh, which is that the strike wait until after Wednesday because he needs to go to the airport on Wednesday. Seems perfectly reasonable, don't you think? That's totally reasonable. No, no, David. The, The revolution will wait for you. Well, the, the alternative is that David can can finally loosen up the keys for the deep state radio private G5 that would enable Ooh. us to fly around on the road. Yeah. I wouldn't have to go to the airport, okay. you know. It's, it's actually, you're, you got it all wrong. It's a G550, but we'll move on. Um, over, another development over the weekend um, and then let me turn to Evelyn first. Wait, you that. haven't gotten to the second reason of the constitutional crisis, although you can come back to Maybe me. Maybe that's that, what so he's getting to. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, no, go I feel finish. like he's going to use the R word really soon. It is. <laughs> and that's why I was about to use the R word, but go ahead, Rosa. That's well, diff- I'll, I'll just say it really briefly now, and if, you, and if people want to, we can return to it. But, but as, as our listeners uh, know, there were several blockbuster uh, uh, journalistic stories over the last few days, uh, one uh, broken by the New York Times, um, noting that after Comey was fired uh, by Donald Trump from his position as FBI director, that the FBI, that others in the FBI were so so worried that Trump's behavior suggested he might be an agent of the Russian government that they uh, initiated a counterintelligence investigation of the president of the United States. Uh, There was also a revelation in the Washington Post just a couple days later that President Trump had actively sought to keep the details of his meetings with Russian President Vladimir Putin, even from senior members of his own administration going so far at one point as to take the notes of his interpreter uh, so they couldn't be shared with anybody, including his own people. Um, and 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 what does this have to do with constitutional crisis? You know, two things. One, um, I think it's fair to say that in a in a general way, uh, it would pose a a potential constitutional crisis if, in fact, the president of the United States is a an agent of a hostile foreign power. Um, but but number two, the that seems that seems like a reasonable assertion. But 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 the other side of that, right? Um, uh, a lot of commentators have expressed some dismay, and rightly so, about the FBI on its own authority 
at the career official level, opening a counterintelligence investigation of the president. Um, the reason for that is that in a democracy, we we in our constitutional democracy, we entrust the president of the United States with being the person who decides what's in the U.S.'s national security interest. And to have the president's judgment superseded by the judgment of a bunch of people who weren't elected, you know, you can imagine how that could be done in a really abusive way. You know, imagine imagine a, a hawkish counterintelligence uh, 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 apparatus in the FBI uh, who were opposed to a president seeking to end a war, for instance, and decided to say, oh, well, it violates U.S. national security. You know, you can see it being done for sort of what we would see as ideological harassment purposes. Um, but because of the other revelations, what else are they supposed to do? So our, our Constitution does not give us an answer to that. You know, there is no there is no constitutional solution to, you know, what is the career bureaucracy supposed to do when there is credible evidence that not, not for just ideological reasons to think that the, the president of the United States is an agent of a hostile power. You know, it, 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 it is, it is, I think, moving rapidly towards crisis, uh, because there's no, there's no constitutional answer. There's there, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. In May of 2019, we released an episode titled constitutional rot part 12. How much of this can we take? Rosa says we are clearly experiencing a political and ethical crisis, but still believes that the president would at some point be held accountable for his actions, whether criminally or otherwise. Well, Rosa, you know, one of our favorite subjects here on Deep State Radio is, are we in a constitutional crisis? And I ask this question periodically, and then you periodically <laughs> respond. <laughs> Poo-poo it. You say, no, we're not in a constitutional crisis. Um, but then you always make this kind of good point that, you know, our, consti our constitution is kind of a crisis. Exactly. That it's kind of flawed in some fundamental ways. And one of the ways we've discovered it's flawed is that there are no checks and balances if one House of Congress, such as the Senate, is controlled by the same party as the president and has the same same lack of uh, uh, sort of morality or or sense of obligation to the Constitution um, and can block this kind of thing, uh, like an impeachment process or the trial side of the impeachment process. Um, and, and so we're in a system right now where if the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice says you can't levy charges against a president and the Senate refuses to... Uh, uh, as they seem likely to, to convict a president of any wrongdoing, that the president of the United States is actually above the law. The Economist made this point last week, but that he, that he is above the law and that he, you know, as he recognizes this, he seems to be increasingly doing things to flaunt that fact, not, you know, telling his staff not to go to meetings. Uh, uh, to 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 submit to subpoenas, to uh, provide uh, uh, required documents required by the Congress, um, uh, telling border officers that they don't have to follow the law. You know, he'll get them off the hook. Uh, he seems to be sort of testing this flaw or this blind spot in the Constitution. And isn't that a bit of a crisis? A, a constitutional crisis. <laughs> 
So two points. One, not to be overly optimistic, but but, you know, it ain't over till it's over. Um, And the it is entirely possible that President Trump will face charges when he is no longer in office, stemming from his behavior while he was in office. So I, I don't I don't you know, while I think some cynicism and pessimism is is uh, entirely appropriate. I, I'm also not quite ready to give up uh, on the notion that there may be accountability, not only political accountability, but ultimately accountability under criminal law for Donald Trump one of these days. I, th- I think we don't know yet. Um, um, and I, but I also think, and, and this, I mean, this, as you know, is my, my argument about the Constitution, is that Asking whether we're in a constitutional crisis is the wrong question to be asking. Um, who cares if we're in a constitutional crisis or not? We're clearly in a political and ethical crisis um, and have been for some time. Um, and it, 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 using the Constitution as the as the yardstick by which to evaluate whether or not America is is sort of politically healthy, just strikes me as deeply misguided, you know, that that there's so much that is structurally uh, flawed in the system our constitutional set up, our constitution set up. So there are plenty of things that are not un- unconstitutional, um, but that are pretty awful, um, you know, and, and so it's, it's just the wrong measuring stick, you know, that, that it can be it can be a useful to stick with my my metaphor here, you know, it can be a useful tool nonetheless, because we do have a system in which that is the reference point. And if you want to challenge executive behavior, you have to make reference to it if you want to litigate successfully. Um, but but I also think that it's it's sort of a distraction from the fundamental issue, which is that we have a, you know, corrupt kleptocratic president uh, who is you know, has embraced uh, crony crony capitalism of the the worst sort, um, and we are facing all kinds of significant economic and political problems here in the United States. Many of which do not implicate constitutional issues at all. Um, but that should not reassure us. Uh, you know, the fact that something bumps up against constitutional limits is sort of neither here nor there with regard to whether we should be really, really upset about it. I really want to do a podcast with with just Rosa, um, maybe with video so she could have like a like a blackboard behind her called The Constitution Sucks. And then Rosa would just take us through all the parts of the Constitution that need to be fixed. And then we could send this to all the states and and it would su- suffice in, in lieu of a constitutional <laughs> right. convention. And we I could, could save them a little time we, by just giving them a list. We just says Rosa says change this, and then we could just send them like with, you know, an annotated version of the fixed constitution, the Rosa <laughs> the Rosa Brooks Constitution. As, From your lips to God's ears. It's it is. I'm sure James Madison is up in heaven someplace saying, if only Rosa. <laughs> could fix my mistakes. Uh, but but it does seem to me, Evelyn, that we are, whether we're in a constitutional crisis or an ethical crisis, a moral morass, a political humdinger of a mess, that 
we are entering we just a period- go with crisis. Crisis. Okay, we're in a crisis, a, <laughs> a generalized, non-specific crisis um, that 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 it's going to be increasingly harder as we get closer to the election for anything to get done in the United States, foreign, domestic. But that the only options the United the president's going to actually have to sort of flex his you know prove he exists is going to be international or unilateral measures out of the White kind of like what happened with Obama, um, but that's pretty worrisome because there's a bunch of messy places around the world right now that are teetering on the brink of turning into crises in their own right, and I I might point out or you might point out or we might discuss. The fact that we continue not to have a defense secretary, not to have, well, though there was nominated to you. Just as well. <laughs> I'm beginning to think it's just as well. <laughs> well, no, well, maybe. No. Well, I mean, it could have been Tom Cotton, right? I mean, we could have, we could have ended up with a really bad uh, choice there, like we have now with a UN ambassador who was part of the coal lobby um, or a nominee. Uh, but there's just so many open positions. The government. You know, Trump's trying to prove that you don't need people to, you know, you don't need a government. Um, I don't know. It seems. Well, he thinks that he just needs himself and a couple members of his family. In October 2019, Rosa finally declares that we are officially in a full-blown constitutional crisis. She, along with David Rothkopf and Ryan Goodman, discuss how we got here. We record these on Thursdays, and every Thursday we've got with us Ryan Goodman, who is the co-editor of Just Security and a professor at NYU Law School. And because this is a special Deep State Radio, we have with us Rosa Brooks, um, who is the keeper of the Constitutional Crisis Brief for Deep State Radio. Oh, right. Um, it's official. It's official now. We're in one. We are officially in a constitutional crisis. Rosa's been resisting this, Ryan, right. for two years. No, it's irresistible, and and it's ir- and it's irresistible. So, Rosa, let's start with that, because um, uh, Lord knows there's no news to go to. Um, uh, wh- why is it official? Why are we in one now? Well, for a long time, David, as as our listeners know, um, I have said, look, um, Trump doing things that we don't like, Trump doing things that break U.S. law. Trump being generally horrible, immoral, and objectionable uh, is not the same thing as a constitutional crisis. We have a constitution that was set up to contemplate uh, a lot of jostling between the branches of government. Um, We have a constitution that was premised upon the idea that there are going to be factions and that each branch of government is going to try to expand its own power at the expense of the others. Um, and all of that is is normal. Um, that is, it may not be good. Uh, we may not like it, but it's it's normal constitutional politics. And even when Donald Trump breaks the law, uh, when the response to Trump breaking the law is that another branch of government or another actor litigates to try to force him to comply with the law, and the Trump administration participates in the litigation, that's that's also normal. It's not a constitutional crisis. Uh, you know, it's still it may be it may be horrible governments, it may be immoral, it is all those things, but it's not a constitutional crisis. Now, however, um, the situation has changed, and uh, I'd love to hear Ryan's thoughts on this as well. Now we're in a situation where 
the Constitution doesn't contemplate uh, the situation we're in. We have a direct direct conflict between two branches of government, one that's unlikely to be resolved by the judiciary. We have the Constitution gives Congress the sole power, uh, sole impeachment power, and the House of Representatives specifically has the power to bring impeachment proceedings against the president. Uh, it's crystal clear. Um, we have uh, the House of Representatives is, is doing so. Um, and, and as a side note, no, they do not need to have a floor vote on this. They can do it any old way they want. The Constitution doesn't give any particular guidance on how they should do it. Um, so the House of Representatives, consistent with its constitutional mandate, has uh, begun an impeachment investigation and issued subpoenas and so forth. And then we have another branch of government, a co-equal branch of government, the branch that is subject to impeachment, is saying, no, screw you. We're not playing. We refuse to respond. Uh, comply with your subpoenas. We refuse to provide you with documents or witnesses or anything else, and we regard your proceedings as illegitimate. And that kind of head-to-head conflict, uh, where one branch simply says, I don't care what the Constitution says, I'm not doing it, is is really qualitatively different from anything we have seen up until now. Uh, The courts have traditionally stayed out of fights between Uh, branches of government, the courts have tended to say, hey, not for us to decide what impeachment means or or how to go about it or anything like that. So there's no obvious mechanism for resolving this. And and there's more I want to say about the possibilities for this to become even more dire in terms of a political crisis. But but let me stop there for now. No, we could just sit here quietly and listen to you. You're you're being extremely. <laughs> I mean, it only gets better. It only gets better. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you one little quick follow up question before I go to Ryan. Um, uh, both you and Ryan attended law school. I actually did for a semester, but I didn't get to this in any course Ryan that I, I took. Ryan and I, in fact, attended law school together. I, I don't say. know if you know that, David. I, I actually do know that. <laughs> I, I I did know it's that. It's been a you, coincidence. You you met you mentioned that, but but. I'm going to call you out because while the two branches that you referred to are co-equal branches of government, generally speaking, is it not the case that on the issue of impeachment, they are not? That all of the power of impeachment lies with the House. All of the power to determine— Well, all the power to to, to, to the Senate that has to uh, hold the— uh, trial in well, that, well, um, yeah, but, right, but that's that's different from impeachment. That's the removal side. All I'm saying is, right. it's not even a tug of war between two co-equal branches. The House is allowed to determine how it wants to proceed with this. Um, that's correct. I mean, there's still co-equal branches, but the Constitution clearly says the House gets to do it. The, the trouble is, the Constitution doesn't give us any remedy if one branch of government says. I don't care what the Constitution says. I'm not playing. And that's what the Trump administration is doing right now. Okay. So, Ryan, are you willing to jump mm-hmm. on the constitutional crisis bandwagon <laughs> with your former <laughs> classmate? Um, I think maybe we might have a might be on the same page, but then the jumping off point might be where Rosa was about to go because she said it only gets more dire, and I think there might be a way out. Um so I, just to say why I'm on the same page, I do think what is so extraordinary is that the letter from the White House counsel is in fact enacting uh, what only Donald Trump was saying in his just kind of 
um, unfettered <laughs> rhetoric, which was, you know, yeah, yeah, like when Donald <laughs> Trump said, uh, you know, I'm not, we're not going to honor any subpoenas, any. Then people said, well, you know, that's not actually the position of the Justice Department. They're actually saying when they have executive privilege or certain under certain circumstances and conditions, might they not, uh, uh, might they push back against subpoenas? But this is, as the New York Times uh, headline said, the White House declares war against Congress. Um, and the declaration of war included two pieces. One is that the White House counsel's letter said that the impeachment is invalid, categorically, as it currently stands, the impeachment process. And second, as Rose had said, that uh, there'll just be no further cooperation at all um, from the White House because they determine that the process is unfair as well. And because of the, their 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 uh, definition of fairness in terms of uh, allowing the executive, the president's lawyers to cross-examine witnesses or the minority in the House to call uh, or subpoena witnesses, uh, because of their definition of fairness, if it's not fair according to the White House, they're not going to cooperate. And that's just nuts. I mean, that really is taking away from Congress the sole power over impeachment, which is in the explicit text of the Constitution. I guess my only thought is, um, and then you know, I'd love to hear what Rosa is about to say about how it gets more dire, is that there's maybe one way out, uh, which is we're in a situation where the House doesn't actually need that information, I think. In order to proceed with impeachment, there is more than sufficient uh, evidence in the public record through the president's own admissions and through the smoking gun um, Ukraine phone call transcript uh, to move ahead with impeachment. So it's not like they actually need the information to get done what they need to get done. And I think, if I'm right, I've detected in Adam Schiff's present, uh, all his presentations, he's never said it's necessary uh, for us to get this information uh, to perform our function here. He's just said it's important information. And I think he's therefore avoiding the pitfall that happened with uh, Chairman Nadler under the Mueller investigation, which is to suggest that they needed more information before they could make the call. And... Um, and I think that sent the public mixed signals about, oh, they can't really do it unless they get the grand jury information because there's not enough evidence there about abuse of power. We've just got uh, you know ample evidence of a, the gross abuse of power and a threat uh, to the country and the um, president's violation of his oath of office with the Ukraine matter. Maybe that's the way out. Okay. So, Rosa, you said you wanted to go on. Go on. Well, that doesn't completely make me feel better. I, I think that's absolutely right, um, what Ryan just said. I mean, I mean, there is the Constitution is absolutely silent on how impeachment will will go forward. It is absolutely silent on what constitutes, you know, high crimes or misdemeanors and treason and how to define that. Um, it's it's not a trial, but particularly, in the house, it it is it is more akin to a grand jury process. Um, uh, you know, it's essentially the bringing of indictments of an indictment is the closest parallel to, to sort of normal criminal process. Um, but the Constitution leaves it entirely up to the House to do what they want. And at least hypothetically, the House doesn't need anything. It doesn't even need anything in the public domain. Hypothetically, at least, um, you know, all the House needs to do is is vote and say, we believe that Donald Trump has, is guilty of you know, treason, high crimes, misdemeanors, et cetera. They don't have to say why. They don't have to review evidence. It, it can, you know, there, there's no constitutional requirement that it is anything other than a, 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 a purely political 
judgment. And, and in that sense, they check on the executive branch by the legislative branch. Um, so sure, they could do it. And in this case, as Ryan said, there's, there's lots of evidence already in the public record that strikes me as being you know, more than sufficient, even if in fact they were looking at, uh, you know, if they were in fact to adopt you know, federal law in terms of definitions of crimes here. Um, but, but I think that that, and that is, and maybe they will go in that direction. I think that the downside of going in that direction is, and this is exactly why I think the White House is trying to force them down that path, is that if they, it, it, it allows Trump and his supporters to continue to claim that somehow there was some substantive and procedural unfairness and that he is a victim and that they didn't give him a chance. And unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of Americans who will believe that. You know, so I think it's certainly in the interests of uh, uh, Adam Schiff and, and the Democratic Party and indeed the interests of the nation to be able to, as much in public as possible, to have witnesses testify, to have documents get out in the open and so forth. Um, so I'm, I'm a little worried about you know, I mean, I mean, right now, one might, I guess one might say, well, what difference does it make? It's not as though we expect the Senate to vote to remove regardless, because it's so many Republicans in the, in the, in the Senate. I think at, at this moment, yes, it seems very unlikely that the Republican majority Senate would vote to remove Donald Trump. I think that if the House moves forward without being able to call witnesses uh, from the administration, without being able to get any documents from the administration, that makes it overwhelmingly likely that the Senate persists in, in the sort of non-removal path. Whereas I think there is a possibility, a more, much more of a possibility than I would have guessed, uh, you know, even one week ago, much less two weeks ago or longer, that if more evidence is able to get out into the, the, the public domain, that things could shift even in the Senate. And I say that, I say that um, because uh, we've seen a real shift in the polling. Uh, support for impeachment and removal is up quite substantially in a very short time, even among Republicans. You know, we're even at a point where about 20 percent of Republicans favor impeachment and removal, which is a, a really stunning shift. So I would really like to see more information come out. I haven't even gotten, by the way, to my nightmare constitutional crisis mm -hmm. scenario, um, which which I, I suspect Schiff and Pelosi are going to try very, very hard to avoid. Um, but it's here's the really scary one, right? The really scary one is that uh, they don't want to go forward without just sort of say, OK, fine, you know, we'll just we'll just uh, vote to impeach, you know, regardless of what you do or don't do Donald Trump. Um, the really scary scenario is they start trying to enforce some of these subpoenas um, and the White House doesn't comply, you know, continues to not comply. And then we have kind of a full-fledged standoff with the potential to cause real civil unrest and a real split in the – a real split in our government's enforcement mechanisms. You know, do – who who tries to enforce at that point? You know, does – you know, the sergeant at arms tries to arrest Rudy Giuliani or, or some actual, actual paid member of the Trump administration. What if they don't want to comply? Well, who, who comes out to back them up in that situation? You know, what does the FBI do? What does the military do? You know, that, that it may seem far-fetched, but we're a lot closer to that than I ever would have thought we would possibly be 
And that's a really scary scenario. Well, I think we're not just close to that. I think we are we are in that in the sense that um, it's clear uh, in the Ukraine case that when a case that ought to have been followed up on was presented to the Department of Justice, they chose not to follow up on it. And it seems like they've turned down the heat on a number of cases um, that Mueller was looking into. And I read earlier this week that it seems one of the things that Congress is grappling with is that, you know, if you if you hold somebody in contempt of Congress, then you require the Justice Department to enforce that. And they don't believe the Justice Department will enforce that. And so, you know. But that's why this is different, though, right? We haven't quite faced that before. There's a difference uh, between the Justice Department exercising discretion, even if we think it's politically motivated discretion, not to pursue cases, for instance, versus the Justice Department, say, flat out refusing a, a constitutionally valid lawful order from uh, either Congress or from the courts. You know, the, the, it's a pretty big step up. Yeah, no, 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 no question about it. Although it it does get, and I'm turned to Ryan now, but it it does get into sort of what is my related nightmare scenario, and it and it goes back to your point, Ryan, and that is, what if these things are hanging in the air and unaddressed? What if Schiff says, "Well, we're going to go ahead without this. We're not going to challenge the White House assertion." Uh, we're not going to pursue subpoenas that that they ignore. Um, one of the things you do in cases like that is that you set precedent. Um, you 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 weaken constitutional protection because the next time this happens, they'll say, "Well, the White House asserted that, and Congress didn't challenge it, and maybe it's true." And you know, you could say, "Well, that's kind of far fetched," but think about the Office of Legal Counsel memo that the president can't be indicted. Not a binding memo and doesn't come from anywhere. Mm. Um, uh, You know, sort of two versions of it floating around over a period of a couple of decades, several decades. Um, And it's sort of made its way into something that isn't quite the law, but is being adhered to as though it were. And, uh, I, I know I was very pleased to note that I don't know was it this week mm-hmm. when when did that judge in Marrero blow it up blow blow up the Justice Department's assertion that the president couldn't be yeah unless was eight hours was, so, some some yeah. point in the blur that is the past few days yeah um, and he said that pres- the presumption of that memo is 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 overwrought or you know overreaching and and so forth. But it's having all this gray area when one group of people believe in a unitary executive and the idea that the president is the final arbiter of everything. Um, and that that's, you know, not challenging that strikes me as, as da- you know, as dangerous too. We hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Best of Deep State Radio. From all of us at the DSR Network, have a safe, healthy, and happy new year.